Build a man a fire, and he'll be warm for a day. Set a man on fire, he'll be warm for the rest of his life. Terry Pratchett. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Felonious Pundits. I'm Kentad Svensgaard, your host, and along with me, as always, your other host. Please say hello to Mr. AJ Mass. Okay, I'm the other host. Okay, I see where this is going here. <laughs> you sucker me in by uh, giving a quote from my favorite author of all time and then turn it around on me. All right. Okay. AJ, I'm on fire. <laughs> Folks, welcome. This is a podcast about the show Criminal Minds. Each week we take a look at an episode of the show. And uh, I have never seen the show before, so I'll give you that perspective. And while AJ is a longtime fizzled, grizzled, fizzled, a fizzled <laughs> Gretchen, <laughs> a. <laughs> yeah, anyway, AJ has seen the heavy episode and. Uh, He's going to be giving you that perspective. I'm, oh, I'm about as visible as it gets these days. <laughs> this week, folks, we're taking a look at Season 2, Episode 19 of uh, Criminal Minds. This week's episode is entitled Ashes and Dust. This episode was written by Andrew Wilder, directed by John Gallagher, and it originally aired on March 21st, 2007. So, AJ, this week... Yeah, what, what's up? <laughs> instead of our cold open, we had a very, very hot open this oh, week. Oh, no. Oh, no. It took me, you know, a good five minutes to craft that joke. Please appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, you tell us everything that happened while I just... Oh, God. Yes. We start outside a house in South San Francisco, California at night. We cut inside to see a couple sleeping in bed and then shots of a gloved hand pouring kerosene all over the place, including now a chest of drawers that we see has a bunch of family photos on top of it. Then our unsub ignites it. We see the desk go up in flames. A teenage boy comes into his parents' bedroom and wakes his mom and dad, saying, we have to get out. The house is on fire. They start to crawl through the house. The dad is feeling doors and seeing that they can't go in one room. And so they crawl the only way they can along until they get to the front of the house. There's flames everywhere and unfortunately smoke everywhere. And the family is coughing, starting to succumb. But the dad is able to reach out to the front door and unlock it. But unfortunately, it's not opening. It seems to be stuck. He uh, gets overtaken by the smoke, passes out. The mom tries the door. She can't open it. She starts screaming out for help. And she, too, is all of a sudden overcome. Suddenly, our unsub walks in, wearing a full-flame retardant fire suit, looking much like a fireman would, including the mask and the oxygen tank. He stares at the open eyes of our possibly dying mother before he calmly pulls something out of the door, wires or something that was blocking the door. And he gets out, goes to his car, 
drives off as the house burns. Credits. Criminal minds, criminal minds, criminal minds, criminal minds. It's criminal minds. I I I think it's a a cool open. I think uh, it's a nice change of pace. Just just, there was not a lot of dialogue. The action as it unfolded, you kind of experienced it as the family did. I will say from a terms of, uh, you know, you're supposed to have a game plan in place just in case your house would catch on fire. I don't think this family really had a great game plan. Uh, cover your mouths with something. They were inhaling a lot of smoke. Would even just take your, your pajama shirt that you're wearing and put it over your cover face. Your, like yeah. something. They did nothing to mitigate that. Uh, also, you know, once they got turned that corner there and they kind of saw where all the fire was. If you if you're if you don't have the energy, just like run downstairs. <laughs> yeah. Like go out the bedroom window. There were there were no flames in their rooms. Like, yeah, it's a jump, but you'll survive, you know? Yeah. Uh, And it wouldn't have been much of a jump looking at, like, the size of that house looked like a basic ranch. It didn't look like it was, uh, you know, I would have tried to head for a window. Um, Yeah, it just seemed to me that the teenage son had enough wherewithal to, like, make it from his room to their room. And, like, his room was probably okay. Go back through there. Like, I don't know. I've I've thought about it in my house. (laughs) I know which rooms to go, you know, just, yeah, window. Roof. All right, I'll I'll make the jump, or I'll try and shimmy down, or something. But uh, my wife actually had me buy one of those rolling chain ladders for because we're on the second floor. I have no idea where it is, but after this, uh, <laughs> after we record this, <laughs> I I know where my extinguishers are, and now you've got me thinking. So yeah, uh, look, uh, all I'm saying is yes, they were woken up in the middle of the night. This is a shocking situation. Your adrenaline is pumping. You're, you're confused. You're in a fog. Who knows how anyone would would react? And quite frankly, they could have gotten out the door, <laughs> except for the unsub was was a devious bastard. So yeah, what are you gonna do? I- Exactly. So we open uh, with the uh, BAU office and Hotch is giving us our opening quote. The torture of a bad conscience is the hell of a living soul. John Calvin. Oh, we're going to have a miserable episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Talk about a tone setter. We watched a family burn to a crisp and I was like, hmm, <laughs> tortured souls. <laughs> So uh, the team is going over the case with JJ. Two fires and two families perished in the last three weeks. The first family, the Jarvises, all died. Last night it was the Cutler family, and there was one survivor, Charlotte Cutler, the mom, who's in critical condition right now with burns over 60% of her body. This was no accident. It's the same MO. There's no fuses. There was kerosene used. There was multiple points of origin for the fire. And the families were targeted at home while they slept. Reed drops us some stats on the serial arsonists. 94% are male, 75% are white, and few, if any, are caught. And uh, Emily Snark's few. You don't have a percentage on that. And uh, Reed gives her the percentage of 16% and says, but he's trying to be more conversational. (laughs) (laughs) Emily says, well, it's not really working. I like it. A little fun. We're getting character uh, in, in this episode. A lot of character development. It's good. Yes. But uh, however, I will say not too much of Reed beyond this, beyond this first scene. Well, we'll, but, get, we'll uh, get there. We'll get there. But yeah. I, I, I got to say, uh, just in general, this entire episode, 
you know, who had said this is like uh, maybe not the greatest episode. Plot wise, I would absolutely 100% agree. I think character wise and getting the show back on back on track, this was a course correction that I, I was amazed at how much character there is in this episode. So even though you're, yeah, the, the the plot, the the case. Yeah, I felt like the case was kind of a snoozer this time around. I mean, yeah, but yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. So anyway, <laughs> it's not working, baby. It's not working. <laughs> yes, uh, most of the arsonists that they uh, deal with, serial arsonists, don't intend on inflicting harm. But this one seems to be different. This one seems to be about the violence and about the power. And again, they go into the fire being a substitute for sexual release. This unsub appears to be probably one of a kind. There was a major event that led to this escalation where he started killing people, possibly the breakup of his primary sexual outlet. The SFPD hasn't been able to do anything to connect the victims. But at both scenes, witnesses did see an unidentified late model gold sedan. Garcia is going to run the victims through the system to look for any connections. Reed will do the victimology, and Hotch will go see Charlotte Cutler. And Gideon mentions that Hotch took the burn unit last time, and he can take it. But Hotch says, no, it's okay. He's got it. Yeah, it's an interesting exchange there. I'm not quite sure what's up with that. But uh, there seems to be uh, the birth of some sort of... Uh raised eyebrows there absolutely now there was one thing in this scene i don't know if you noticed this is one of those things where i was kind of like gazing around my screen while i was watching kind of uh, you know i know where the case is going obviously and i noticed behind hunter's head there was a whiteboard which was all talking about this mandatory meeting that all people had to attend it was the unsub seminar coming up except mandatory was spelled M-A-N-D-I-T-O-R-Y, mandatory, oh. <laughs> and big letters with flashing, you know, stars and underline. I'm like, well, it's mandatory. You learn how to spell. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, I did not notice that, but <laughs> I'm an editor. These things just jump out I was just going to say, that's the editor in you, AJ. That is the like, editor. Mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> delete, delete, delete. I becomes an A. Hello. <laughs> So we cut next to the burn ward. We see a badly burned Mrs. Cutler. Uh, Hotch and Prentice are talking to a doctor outside of the room. The doctor says she hasn't said anything about the fires. Uh, she did ask about her husband and son, but she passed out again before the doctor had to answer that. So that means she doesn't know what happened to her family. But whatever they tell her, she won't live long enough to know any different. The doctor walks off and Prentice asks Hotch if she just told them to lie to a witness. And Hotch says, no, but she told us we could. Yeah, this this is one of those. OK, I get it that you're, uh, you know, your chief witness, possibly, possibly the only witness is dying. <laughs> it's not going to make it through the day. Uh, they take a lot of time before they get, get this conversation going. It's just like. If her time is that limited, then just go write it. <laughs> oh, go talk to the woman. Go talk to the woman. It's... What do we have this little private hush-hush outside? Like, we're here. Yeah, she's dying. Uh, get in there. <laughs> You've got <Yeah>. five minutes. <laughs> we cut 
Next to the crime scene and Morgan and Gideon meet up with one of our local cops this week, uh, Lieutenant Ricardo Vega, who's actually with the fire department, the arson unit. And he says that our suspect is most likely a first responder who set both fires with premeditative intent to return to it within a professional capacity. And Jason Ego Gideon (laughs) says, oh, you must have read my paper. (laughs) And just once I'd like someone to tell Gideon, no, I have no idea who you are. But no, instead, this guy has made everyone on his team read Gideon's famous profiles of a serial arsonist paper. And he also gives them reports on every first responder that was there at each fire. But there was only one responder who was at both crimes, uh, which was himself. So he's provided his performance reviews, medical records, and psych evals. They're like, "Uh, hey, we don't need all that. And he says, look, your best suspect is a fireman who saw both fires burning. That's him. So he's just saving them some time and he's going to go walk them through the house. <laughs> I mean, and Gideon is, is super impressed. It's like, if only every person who they meet at the crime scenes when they first land was this helpful. It's like, hey, yeah, I know all about profiles. I've actually read your research on it. I, I Here's all the information you need. <laughs> yeah. So let's start at, you know, instead of ground zero, and you haven't explained to me, it's like, uh, let's just go. We, you know, we just saved ourselves three days. <laughs> yes. No typical unsub. What does that mean? <laughs> Profiling. Profiling. What? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. B A U. More like B S U. If you ask me, we do cop work here. <laughs> Real cop work. Uh, so now we cut back to Hotch and Prentice finally talking to Mrs. Cutler, and kudos to the makeup department. Because it was hard for me to look at her badly burned body. They did a good job with the makeup and the look of that. And uh, so obviously she's much out of it. She a- She's asking for her husband. They tell her they're FBI. They need to know what happened. So she describes the night and we see a flashback to it. She's asking her husband to go fix the water because she was trying to brush her teeth and the water wasn't working. So he went outside and got that turned back on. Then they went to bed. They weren't awakened by smoke alarms, interestingly enough. No alarms were going off, AJ. But instead, they woke up when their son woke them. They, She explains they tried to get out of the door, but it wouldn't open. Then she saw the fireman, and she knew she would be all right. She's quite sad. <laughs> she asks for her husband and son and it seems like Emily was about to say, oh, no, they did. But uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hotch cuts her off and says, you know what? They're right outside. And then he tells Emily to uh, go to call Gideon and Morgan. And uh, the mom is saying she's not ready to see her family yet. And uh, Hotch tells Mrs. Cutler he'll sit with her until she's ready to see them. And she appreciates that. After a second, she closes her eyes. I don't know at this point if it's possibly the last time she's closing her eyes because we don't have that typical EKG beeping in the background (laughs) that you get in scenes like this to let us know for sure. Sure, sure, sure. But I mean, it's it's certainly with the doctor saying what she said earlier. Yeah, she's probably not opening those eyes again. And she is ready to see them again because 
they did. So she's joining them <laughs> in the the hereafter. I, you know, it, it's again. I think it's a fantastic character scene where like uh, Hotch makes the decision he is going to lie to her. They got the information they needed, and Emily, you, you saw her reaction was like, oh, really, Jesus, <laughs> like I, yeah. pl- we we have rules. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, after L comes M, Ali, and she <laughs> is the complete opposite, you know, because if L were still around, she'd be like, all right, listen, lady, you're about to die, so we need this information pronto. Come on, chop, chop. Your family's dead. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> yes. Would have been a much different scene. I'm just curious. I mean, as a homeowner myself, I, I don't understand this thing like, oh, the water's not working. Go fix it. Like, the water just doesn't turn off. <laughs> it's not yeah. like a fuse. Yeah, blown fuse. Hey, could go in the garage and flick, flick the, the circuit breaker. That makes sense to me. But yeah, my water is is done by a by a, a, a nozzle at the at the curb too. But if if someone's turned that, <laughs> I'm calling the police. <laughs> yeah, what's happening? Like, somebody somebody turned off my water. What, what's like, going oh, on here? Oh, the water turned off. Like it's not. It's not like flip. <laughs> it's you know, open a, ha- a unscrew a hatch. Wee wee wee. Like there's work and Some, effort involved. Somebody had to do that. Yeah. yeah. Again, this family sucks. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, so we cut back at this point to the Cutler house. Gideon has come back. To Vega and Morgan after talking with Hotch on the phone. Uh, talking to Emily on the phone. I'm sorry. Yes. Talking to Emily and says that, uh, you know, mentions the fact that she told her husband that there was no water. So they ask where the shutoff valve is and Vega points to a spot outside near the sidewalk. And then we get to see another Morgan walking in the shoes of scene where he's going through the whole t- routine of what must have happened, and it's Morgan actually doing all these things. He says the unsub needs to get into the house, so he shuts the water off, waits for the cu- husband to come outside, at which point he goes inside the house, then he hides, and then he waits for them to go to sleep. And then he starts methodically pouring the fuel out all over the house. He cuts off access to the back door. He leaves them only one path to get out, the front door. They open the front door at this point and Vega spots where he thinks a tool of some kind must have been used to block the door from the inside so that it wouldn't open. And since they don't have whatever blocked the door, they figure that the unsub must have taken it with him, which means he must have been inside the house while all the fire was going on. Vega says if that's the case, then he had to be in full fire gear. And that's when they realized she didn't see a fireman. What she saw was the unsub. Vega asks, well, why would he stay in the house while it was on fire? And Gideon says, he wanted to watch them burn. My dear, my dear disciple, he wanted to watch them burn. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, that's exactly what it was. And that's a commercial outro line. Boom, baby. (laughs) Gideon is back. Again, such very helpful to have uh, a competent police officer helping him out. It's like... Oh yeah, well look look right here. Boop boop boop. That's where he must have put something, and he must have taken it with. And like, okay, we we don't have to spend twenty five minutes before we figure that out. And it's it's all logical. There's no jumping to some extreme conclusion. It's it makes sense. Yes, exactly. They, Good job, go Vega. You can <laughs> stay. <laughs> 
After uh, we get back from break, we're at the San Francisco Fire Department headquarters and uh, Reed comes in and he seems to be super impressed that they have an espresso machine. Okay. Uh, (laughs) All right. And uh, JJ introduces Reed to our other local detective. This is the police department liaison, Detective Castro. And as this is going on, Reed is sort of fumbling and bumbling his way because apparently he's burned himself with the aforementioned espresso machine a a little bit. And it's enough for Castro to turn around to JJ and said, and you said this guy was a genius? And uh, JJ is like, well, his coordination does tend to drop when he's thinking, to which Castro says, good, because we really need to figure out why this psycho chose these families as his victims. Reed says... He's most likely targeting the men. They're the only similar members of the two families. They were both in their late 30s, white, about six feet tall, brown hair, nice homes, nice families, good jobs. Castro points out one's a lawyer, one's an executive. There's really no evidence that they ever met. And Reed explains how they're the same type. Our arsonist probably is in his mid-30s and sees the victims as successful versions of his himself. And he resents them for it. So Castro says she'll issue an APB and then gives a sarcastic aside to JJ for a resentful six foot white guy. <laughs> that is a great line. And I, I love that JJ just turning to read and smiling, giving the okay sign. Yeah, good job. Yes. <laughs> Again, the character, the character stuff in this yeah. is just perfect. Yeah, good job, Reed. Yay. <laughs> Go take care of those birds. So let's cut to a bit later. JJ is getting off a call when Hotch walks in and uh, Hotch tells them that Charlotte, Charlotte Cutler died and Gideon is, says, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. And you know what? Next time I'll go. And yeah, this is where I'm like with the scene from before they're laying it on pretty thick that there is some Hotchner related tragedy going on that, that uh, we don't know much about yet, but probably will rear its head in this episode. Anyway, JJ has found out that the car that was seen was a 1999 gold Ford Taurus. 85% of that particular model and color combo were sold as fleet vehicles, meaning rental cars, company cars, that type of thing. She has already had the, the rental companies checked out. Nothing came up, so this was likely a company car. So they figure this guy must have driven around and stalked his victims. And Vega brings up there was a serial arsonist in Seattle who drove around selling advertising for his dad's agency and then would pick out places to burn. And Gideon says, I think we're ready for the profile now. And Hotch says, nice work, JJ. (laughs) Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. That's right, because she's the only one who ever does her damn job around here. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we cut to a typical profile scene, which I will try to get through quickly. Um, They explain our unsub. He's highly intelligent, underachieving, 35 to 45 years old, white man with a severe narcissistic character disorder. He probably acts like a petulant adolescent. He's entitled Mostly likely lives with a female relative who he exploits. He has an expensive arson kit, so he's probably employed, but his personality means he probably wouldn't get along with others in an office setting. So 
They believe maybe he's a traveling salesman of some sort who works for a company big enough to not notice that he's a sociopath. <laughs> Which I did laugh at that. I, I, I thought this entire scene was was like, I. it's almost like, hey, it is season two, episode 19. And we have finally, whoever wrote this episode, whoever directed this episode, they all everyone got on the same page and said, hey, they, we, we figured out how the show works. It's like, you know, Hutch to Gideon to Morgan to Da to D. It's working again. This case is boring as all get out, <laughs> but the beats and the rhythm, I think, Hey, I think they figuring the show out. Yeah. They, and this, you know, I said it's a typical profile scene, but they really moved it along compared to other profiles we've seen, which have gone on for decades. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and Castro is even like, okay, we get it. <laughs> this guy has issues. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which I thought was a great line. And she asks, but why Why fire? And then we do get a little bit of Reed likening fire, likening it to drug abuse. Just in case we forgot that maybe Reed has gone through something, he has to look at Gideon and give him a knowing look, which was the only part that felt off of, of that scene to me. Like, Yes, we know. We understand. Those of us that have been watching. Oh, I see. I actually thought Gideon. it was. I, th- I actually thought it was a little more subtle than that. I thought Reed was talking about it, and then kind of halfway through it, turned his head to Gideon, and kind of was like, "Oh, which you know, they need help to get over it, and it's not going to happen right away, and it might take a little bit of time." And then Morgan kind of looks at him, and then Hodge kind of looks at him, and everybody in the BAU knows exactly what he's saying there, but he's saying it. I actually thought it was progress for him as opposed to, you know, just being me, 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 leave me alone. <laughs> he's actually admitting he has a problem, which I thought was really cool. Uh, no, that wasn't my issue. My issue was, I I, I just felt like they made it a, a little bit too much of a nod. I mean, you said you thought it was more subtle. I thought I, it was I, I thought, maybe, it was maybe it's because I'm doing these deep dives and I just yeah, yeah, like yeah. paying more attention. I, I just I just thought it was it was because the if it had just been Gideon, <laughs> I, I think you maybe you're right. But you know it was like Morgan likes kind of looking at him too, and Hodge's like mm-hmm. noted. <laughs> we, we all got it, Reed. <laughs> and and he kind of like fell back into himself. I'm like, I'll be quiet now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So next, uh, Garcia calls in. She's found a connection from both of the uh, male victims who both seem to work for companies who were on a list that said they were guilty of lust. Ha ha ha. Lust. What is that, AJ? That is leaking underground storage tanks. Yes, indeed. And we will find out later in this episode that that this group that is putting this list out is going to disband. So would you say this is the last lust list? <laughs> and if Garcia were to have misplaced it, would it become the lost last lust list? Oh, man. Lest you, you worked think on I... that one. No, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So uh, she's found this list on the website of a chapter of the Earth Defense Front. And Prentice is like, oh, the EDF, the eco-terrorist group and reed says they aren't eco-terrorists they're environmental activists to which morgan says dennis cutler and matthew jarvis may disagree with you (laughs) i'm just i'm just Uh, glad that emily didn't go edf they're unbelievable oh oh wait that was oh that was emf i'm sorry (laughs) 
So yes, uh, Vega says there were some EDF people who were busted for torching an SUV dealership in San Diego. But Gideon says nobody died in those fires. Emily says maybe they got lucky, but Gideon says it's not luck. These people are are dedicated to protecting life. And uh, Vega says, well, what do they do? Wait until no one's home and then light the place up? And Hotch says, yeah, that's exactly what they do. Then we cut to a back patio of some home and see a father talking to his son about an upcoming soccer soccer match. Uh, he calls out his daughter who comes out. They're getting ready to go somewhere. So they go into the garage and they all get into the car. But the remote for the garage door doesn't seem to be working. We cut back to the team. Vega's asking, doesn't the FBI have files on organizations like the EDF? You know, lists, members, things like that. Derek says domestic groups like the EDF aren't the Bureau's top priority at the moment, and they're more of a movement than an organization. The chapters are all independent. They don't pay dues. They don't keep membership lists. Prentice says maybe it seems like one of the chapters has broken ranks and has a new belief system. We cut back to the garage, and the son is saying, Dad, uh, because they see the unsub in his fire suit. Uh, right in front of the car all of a sudden, and he starts throwing gas all over the car. Dad starts to yell for his kids to get out, but they can't unlock the doors. They can't get out of the car. We cut back to the team. Gideon is saying that hurting people has never been a part of their MO. It doesn't track. It doesn't fit the profile. And Hotch asks Garcia how many members are in this particular EDF chapter. She clickety-clacks and says it's about 100 to 150. But we don't keep lists. <laughs> but they don't keep lists, yes. How would they know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then we cut back to the garage. Our unsub has lit the car on fire at this point. The father and the kids are screaming, obviously panicking. They can't get out. They can't open the doors. We cut to outside the garage. Our unsub is getting in the car. You see smoke coming out from under the garage door. Then we see the, the car explodes and we cut to a break. Yeah, I, I think I would have to say I was very impressed with the acting of the unsub because even though you really can't see his face because they're trying to keep that a secret, you could still see the unsub was kind of laughing as the family starts to burn. I thought that was really, really well acted, just the body language. Like you could tell this bastard's laughing. He's enjoying this, yes. which was hard to do through a a suit where you can't really see your face. As a former mascot, I appreciated the the body language <laughs> acting and emoting. Not that a mascot would ever do this. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not even not, that chicken. Yeah, not even Bernie from Miami Heat. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a second, AJ. Took me a second. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, I, I think this was a little clunky, the back and forth here, but uh, it was a genuinely frightening scene. To, to, you know, and when you have the kids in the back of the car, Daddy, I'm scared, I'm scared. Like, oh no, these kids are going to die. This is not cool. And he, he clearly had to do some planning here because in order to get that whole setup so that they would get in the car and then the doors would lock and they couldn't get out, that was... And the garage door opener isn't working. That that took some uh, work it, there to say. I mean, it's up. not quite saw jigsaw level planning, you know. But <laughs> right. it, it's yeah, it's, there's a little bit of a oh, let's pull the batteries out here, but leave the remote so they can ha 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 torture torture. <laughs> when we come back, 
we're at our latest crime scene. Hotch is there. He's on the phone with Garcia. He gives her the name of the latest victim. It's Thomas Dunleavy, who works for Dunbrook Development Corp. And Garcia confirms that the company is on the lust list. Garcia is sending him a file on the EDF leader, the person they believe to lead the group. His name is uh, Evan Abbey. He's 41, 5'11", 185 pounds. Uh, and he is being brought to the crime scene to be interviewed. Yeah, um, the, the explanation of this didn't work for me. It's like, if, if Garcia is just telling him the information, then they really haven't figured out <laughs> to bring him to the crime scene yet. Like, I, it, it doesn't, doesn't quite and, work. Like, yeah. just, just say, oh, and here's the rest of that information on this guy you asked before. That's all they have to say, because the wheels would already have been in motion. It's like, hey, the guy you're looking for is Evan Abbey. Okay. Well, we want to interview him here, and he's going to be here any second. What? <laughs> if you steps there, that would be just skip. Yeah. So they, the reason they're going to bring him there to the crime scene is they want to get his reaction at the at the bodies. They even have fake bodies, AJ, that they're going to be like moving past in the background while they interview him in order to freak him out. Uh, and, and, and look, look. I, I, this actually does make sense to me. That it's not like they have mannequins that they've charred up for the occasion. They're just going to have people bringing out body bags. They're not going to be able to see in the body bags. So uh, it's it's nice so that we don't think the BAU is actually using the corpses of these children to try and elicit a response from the unsub. They have a little bit more respect for the victims than that. So th th that's why saying that they're fake bodies is important here. Yeah, and thank you for pointing that out, because I I kind of did think, what's going on there? But uh, Gideon does ask Hotch what information they have on this guy, but Hotch seems awfully distracted and doesn't answer the question at first, and, and Gideon has to repeat himself. So Hotch says, oh, oh, Evan Abbey, 41, divorced father of Liam, 14. He's uh, an environmental engineer. He consults on real estate projects, and he has happened to work with every company on the EDF lust list. And Gideon says, well, he can't wait to meet him. So Prentice is there. She has Mr. Abby. She brings him to them and introduces them. And uh, he's like, hi, uh, Agent Prentice said you need my help with a lust-related fire. They answer, yeah, this is a pretty bad scene. The family's all burned to death. Meanwhile, the body bag charade is going on in the back. <laughs> the parade charade. <laughs> yes. And uh, Mr. Abbey does seem distracted by this, but then he just asks, okay, so where's uh, this leaking, leaking uh, storage tank? But Hodge and Gideon are all in on this horrible event that's happened and that the, the youngest girl, Katie, she was only 12 Hey, you have a son that age, don't you? Also, by the way, you knew uh, Tom Dunleavy, didn't you? Dunbrook Development Group? Abby is like, wait, why are you asking me these questions? Well, because you posted that company on your website. Abby's like, my website? Uh, uh, and he starts to realize something uh, is going on here. He says, look, I came here voluntarily because I was told you needed help with a lust-related fire. And Hotch is like, well, three fires, actually. And then he starts. They start showing him all the grisly photos, and 
he can't even really bear to look at them. He asks them if they're accusing him of some kind of crime. And they're like, what do you think? And Gideon's like, look, I support your cause, but I reject these methods. And Abby is like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they say he created the site. He posted the list. He's the leader of the EDF. At this point, Abby says, well, if you could prove that, we wouldn't be having this conversation, would we? Which to me is like, why would you say that? that that's your giveaway right there, buddy. Absolutely. But he's a little cocky there, I guess. And so the Gideon and, and Hotch are like, look, there's children are dying. Have you guys at the EDF changed your strategy? He says, uh, no, they haven't. And then he leaves. And good for him. <laughs> I mean, he actually stayed a little bit too long, quite frankly. It's like, yeah. yeah, you need my help? Yeah, you. Uh, we think you probably burned these kids. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. Should have been like that mother with her son in the last uh, right. episode. If you can, if we, we can know. leave. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so Gideon points out that he could barely look at the pictures. Uh, a serial arsonist wouldn't be able to take his eyes off any of this. And Hotch is insisting, though, that he's definitely hiding something and maybe more than just his support for the EDF. Prentice thinks maybe the unsub has the same misconception about the EDF's motives that people must think that they, uh, you know, they hear about them setting fires. And maybe the unsub wants people around him who appreciates what he does. So he joined the EDF, maybe thinking it was something like an arsonist club. Um, Gideon says, well, that's possible, but they can't give Abby the profile until they know that he's not guilty of anything first. They got to figure out what, what he's trying to hide. So Gideon asks Hotch if he wants to take uh, Abby on for questioning or the ex-wife and Hotch perhaps a bit too aggressively says, I'll take Abby. <laughs> And, and walks off. Yeah. I, <laughs> don't know what's going on. Don't know what's going on. So it's, it's it's weird, but I think it's supposed to be weird. So, okay. We'll see if it pays off. I, I actually liked Emily's, like, uh, having to over-explain because, you know, they don't quite get that she could possibly have a good idea there. <laughs> She's like, well, maybe if he thinks that the EDF is an arsonist group. It's not an arsonist group. Yeah, yeah. I got that. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> but maybe if he thinks it is, because a lot of people think it is. Remember, I thought it was earlier this episode, and then you set me straight. Okay, cool. So let me just say, <laughs> it took him a while to get there. <laughs> it did indeed. So next, we cut to Gideon, who is interviewing Abby's ex-wife. She's saying she felt like he was a different person when they were at Berkeley twenty years ago. He was warm, funny, honest, naive. Twenty years younger. <laughs> 20 years younger yes they had uh school loans she got pregnant he got his consultant job and it was to help builders clean up their sites and make sure that they were up to code and he thought he was hired to do the quote-unquote right thing but it turns out that the builders never didn't care about the mercury in the groundwater they just wanted to pass their inspections quickly and cheaply and all this you know, pressure from his job eventually got him to start drinking and it got real bad, bad enough to the point she thought that this guy would hurt himself. When they ask her about his relationship with his son, she says he doesn't have one. She had to actually threaten him with court to get him to pay the child support. 
which either scared him or really pissed him off because every Sunday night for the past nine months, he's been tossing two grand in cash through their mail slot. She says basically he left us long before she had to throw him out. Damn, he must have been getting paid a lot of money. For $8,000 child support a month? Hmm. Yeah, that is true. That's a lot of that's a lot of money. I mean, don't get me wrong, <laughs> child support support. <laughs> Take care of your business, but that that seems like a lot. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. I, I hadn't thought of it, but yeah, it does. Most of the times on these shows it's like, and he still owes me last month's one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah. <laughs> you get here. It's like Woo. We next cut to see uh Abby getting out of his car. And Hotch and Prentice are actually nearby in their car following him. Hotch is on the phone talking to Haley. Sounds like he's saying he doesn't know when he's going to be coming home, but he's promising he's going to make it up to her. He says he loves her and they hang up. And Prentice asks him if everything's okay. And Hotch just says, yeah, very shortly. I mean, he, okay, so here's where we're, I, I guess we're seeing that Hotch is having problems with Haley a little bit at home. That that's what this phone call is kind of hinting at. I still don't understand. I mean, maybe that's why he wouldn't want to speak to the ex-wife <laughs> because he's having problems with Haley. So like, I don't want to talk to the wife right now. <laughs> right. Okay. You know. So maybe that tracks. It's. I still don't get why he's this distracted. You know, or at least you know, explain this. This doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. This is it. It ends right here. Yeah, I'll have a conversation later in the, in the episode that, that that kind of tries to put two and two together to make four, but it doesn't work. Like, this is where this is the angle that it should have gone down. And it never does. It's a little clunky. Uh, meanwhile, Prentice is going to point out how suspicious Mr. Abby has been acting since they started watching him. He's been, he went and packed a bunch of stuff up into some cardboard boxes and he's making stops first at his lawyer's office and then four different banks Looks like he's getting ready to make a run for it. Emily says, well, what do we do? And Hotch says, nothing for now. We just continue watching him. So Mr. Abby pulls away and Hotch and Prentice follow him. We cut to a bit later. It's evening now and Hotch and Emily are looking at a house that appears to have a bunch of people in it. Prentice says, uh, there's no booze or music. It's either a very lame going away party or it's an EDF meeting, <laughs> which was funny. Look at that Emily got jokes. <laughs> Hotch tells her that he uh, need to set up some surveillance and tells her to grab her camera and just set it up right there, right where they are across the street from the house. They don't have a warrant. They don't have any supplies. Emily says, oh, she catches on. You want to intimidate him. You want me to be seen, basically. Arch says, yeah, he, he wants another chance to find out what Abby is hiding. So she pulls out her big old camera and starts snapping photos of all the EDF members as they're coming out of the house. And it looks like the intimidation tactic worked because Mr. Abby comes over to them and accuses them of harassing him. He says, look, it's over. I've denounced the fires and whoever started them. And I've disbanded this chapter of the EDF. And Prentice says, well, if the EDF had nothing to do with the fires, why disband them? And he answers, but he answers Hotch. He doesn't answer her. He says to Hotch, father to father, I started the EDF for my son and for your son. 
not to have some guy's son burned to death. And then he sort of looks at them, says, hope your pictures come out. And he stalks off. And Hotch asks Prentice if he looks like he weighs 185 pounds. And she says, 165, maybe? AJ, just real quick, as an aside, whenever I hear people do that, I'm amazed. Because I don't think I could tell 20 a 20 pound difference in somebody. Well, well sure. Um, but you're a trained officer. This you're is taught job. to observe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's more the thing there. Uh, I mean, it's not like they're at a carnival and they have to try to run <laughs> <Right>. a Cupid doll. <laughs> tell you what, tell you what, I'll either guess you wait, your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Emily asks, uh, why would this guy have a meeting if he knew that they were watching him? And Hotch says, well, because he wanted us to see it. He wants to make sure that they saw him trying to do the right thing. He doesn't know whether to believe him or not. They need to get the photos to Garcia because either he's angry because he's guilty or he's angry because his attempts to do the right thing with the EDF actually has gotten people killed. Either way, he thinks that Hotch thinks that the arsonist was there tonight. Yeah, I think it's it's this is actually well written. The fact is like, look, I don't know if I believe him or not. Either he's telling the truth completely or he's lying to us completely, but it really doesn't matter because we got the pictures the, the, the score <laughs> yeah we uh cut to a man who was walking away from the meeting and he's muttering to himself yeah i'll show you a sick deranged coward you ignorant son of a bitch he bumps into someone on the sidewalk ignores him and gets into his gold ford taurus he's uh like talking to himself deranged coward i'll show you a deranged coward and he starts screaming and then he drives for a bit and he sees a man in a suit walking by on his cell phone. He lets him pass. And then he pulls out. He has a big old Molotov cocktail. <laughs> AJ. Just ready uh, to go. <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> he just sets it aflame and, and throws it at the man who catches fire, starts screaming. And our unsub just looks on in what I would call sadistic glee. And we cut to a break. Yeah, I I think, though... I really wish that this show would sometimes zig when you think they're going to zag. And they and they do. They, they do. Uh, especially now that like, from this season on, I think they really do have a more playful experience with the audience and try and trick you when you think, oh, it's the answer. Oh, it's not the answer. You know, like, a little more surprise there. But I thought it would have been hysterical if you'd be walking down the street going, I'll show you a sick deranged coward. And then a guy in a firefighter suit. Set him on fire. <laughs> and, and it was a complete oh, yeah. misdirect. I thought that would have been hilarious. That would have been good. It was like that, you know. And again, hilarious in the way that it's TV. These people aren't really dying. People gone. <laughs> yes. But I, I was kind of hoping for that because it was like, the arsonist must have been here tonight. I'm the arsonist, goddammit. Look at me. I'm an arsonist. I'm clearly the bad guy here. Yeah. That was, yeah. That was not subtle. <laughs> <laughs> no. We come back from the break. We're at the crime scene. Detective Castro is there. She's telling our team uh, about the latest victim, one Greg Ballou, 39, white, six feet, handsome, CPA. Every time I hear Ballou, I think of the bear jungle book. Sure. I want to be you. (laughs) Anyway, he was on the phone with his fiance when all of a sudden what we saw happened. Uh, Vega is there. He says the kerosene is the same type from the other fires. Because Hotch had had Mr. Abby under surveillance, they now know that it wasn't him. 
the gold sedan was seen there, so they know that it's their unsub. And given that the attack was less than 30 minutes after the EDF meeting and Abby's house was less than a mile away, this guy was probably at the meeting. The victim, however, wasn't on the EDF list. He was just a guy who looked like he had a nice life like the others. Uh, And the unsub didn't go into a house this time. He barely even got out of his car. This attack was not planned. So we get our usual, oh, he's devolving now. So <laughs> yep. it's, uh, they either say, they always either say devolving or escalating, but they mean the same thing. It's getting worse. It, it means we're in the second half of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This was impulsive. It was random. It was adolescent, like a tantrum. Gideon says that he must have listened to Abby denounce him and his work, and it enraged him, and that was the trigger. And the unsub lashed out immediately, first person he saw. Morgan says, well, we have all the pictures now of everybody that was there, so it's just a matter of time before Garcia can give them a suspect list. And Gideon says, well, no, this guy is devolving too quickly. He's going to attack again very soon. Ticking clock, ticking clock, ticking clock. Timetable, (laughs) timetable. So they're going to have to trust Mr. Abby and give him the profile, see if he can help them out. We cut to Hotch. He's walking out of a medical office. Uh, He gets into a car with Prentice, and he tells her that Abby is leaving, but it's not like they thought. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It was kind of weird. (laughs) Weird phrasing first, because he's not trying to be funny. (laughs) Yes. Because, yes, this last visit was actually to an oncologist, Prentice is able to connect the dots here, the lawyer, the banks. It looks like he's getting his affairs into order. And just a, a minor thing in the writing of this is like, he, he, what he should have said was, he's here seeing his oncologist because he's walking out of a big medical building. It was like, oncology. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> like, hey, what's he going to the oncologist for? I don't know. Let, let me go in. Hey, he's going to see the oncologist. Like, oh, yeah, we got it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he should be. He's here to see his oncologist. He's dying. I assume because I, you know, HIPAA laws, they didn't actually tell me anything, but, you know. <laughs> right. You can't. That's private, AJ. <laughs> can't even ask the question. <laughs> so next we cut to a baseball field. We see some kids playing and we see uh, Abby standing there behind a fence looking at them. Hotch comes up behind him. Says, uh, so which one is your son? Abby says, the catcher, and points him out. And Hotch asks him if, if the boy knows that they're there. Abby says, well, he knows, but uh, they have an arrangement, which is that they both pretend he's not there. Hotch says he's sorry. Then he asks him, how long does he have? Abby says, six months would be a miracle. And he hasn't told anybody it's leukemia. Apparently, lust can be lethal. Yeah. He started the EDF right after he was diagnosed, and he asks Hotch, how did he know? And I thought, well, he just followed you to the oncology. (laughs) 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 But uh, apparently, Hotch has a story. He he says uh, his father, when he was in high school, everybody apparently knew was the type of guy that was having affairs, including uh, Hotch's mom. And uh, Hotch decided he was going to confront him because he knew about it. So he followed him around and 
the lawyers, the doctors, the bank, the weight loss, it was all the same. It, it just came back to him and struck him. Uh, his dad had lung cancer. And so Abby says, well, do you know what benzene is? Hot says, yeah, it causes cancer. Abby says, leukemia, it's also highly flammable and it's kept in underground storage tanks. It's very expensive to clean up, much cheaper just to hide it. And that was his specialty. And most of the properties that he dealt with were zoned CR, which is commercial. Um, It's warehouses where nobody really worked. So he always thought, what's the harm? But one of those jobs uh, sold the property and rezoned for ES, an elementary school. And he didn't report it because then they'd come after him and he'd have nothing to leave for his son. That's why he started the EDF chapter and the lust list. He was trying to do the right thing without really being known <laughs> that he was doing the right, right. thing. Right, without uh, having to take any blame for himself. When it's really, it, it's his fault, but it's not really his fault. I mean, it's it, he, he didn't say no to the job, obviously. It's the corporation's fault. I, we get it all. He's, he's trying to do the best that he can with the bad situation, the bad hand he's been dealt. Uh, this... Again, doesn't... I mean, it's cool to have the character backstory on Hotch and his father. And sure, when he looks at the guy and says, he doesn't look 185 pounds, you know, he's he's figuring it out probably even before he's figured it out. It still doesn't explain why he was so pissy at the beginning of the episode. Uh, it, right. This kind of is in here almost to kind of say, aha, this is why Hotch has been acting strange this whole time. But he didn't know it but the whole time. We didn't, even, we didn't meet Abby until about the third time Hotch went a little cuckoo. So, yeah, it just it doesn't work. It's a little sloppy. Yeah. So Hotch tells Abby that, you know, he can still help them out. The unsub they know was at his house at the meeting. And he starts showing him the pictures of everyone. and says, this guy was angry and enraged, but he was a coward. He wouldn't be, you know, confrontational. He was probably the only one at the meeting who didn't seem angry at the time. And uh, as he's going through the pictures, Abby stops on one picture and and tells Hotch that he thinks this is the guy and identifies him as Vincent Stiles. And I was like, ooh, cool name, (laughs) Vinny Stiles. And of course, (laughs) we know because we've seen the unsub that he has indeed picked the right person. It would be very silly with this much left, you know, this little time left of the episode for him to have picked the wrong person. I think. Right. One of these days, some of these shows should have every witness be, be just wrong. <laughs> that just seems more realistic to me, but perhaps it's not yeah. It's not conducive to storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> so Hotch thanks him for helping out. Abby gets us into his car to leave. We do see him start pull out his phone like he's about to make a call. Uh, we don't go any further with that. But uh, Hotch radios Detective Castro, who's actually there in her car watching the whole goings on. And uh, he tells her to keep talk telling Abby. See, and, and here's here's where Hotch is clearly off his game because Abby's there to watch his son play his baseball game. And he's like, so he pulls him away. Can you help me out? Oh, yeah, here. I've done the right thing. I've helped you out. Cool. I'm going to go back to the baseball game. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> I'm going to get no, in my car and drive away. Car. Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> clearly something's up. I mean, Abby, he... he 
he's he's onto enough to know that he needs to be tailed, but you know, right? He still thinks eh, eh, nothing's wrong here. <laughs> yeah. So next we cut to the team, and of course the big SWAT team as well is is with them SWAT now SWAT. because they are going to breach Styles' apartment. But it turns out Styles is not there once they break in. Uh, Morgan finds a ton of photos on the bed that shows he was stalking the people he found from the EDF list. Prentice comes in, says a neighbor just saw Styles leave. Turns out he's a pharmaceutical sales rep. He's been living there since his divorce about six weeks, weeks ago. Hotch says, oh, that was the stressor. And then Morgan gets a call and tells Hotch that uh, Abby slipped the tail that was following him. Castro. Castro, you had one job. (laughs) (laughs) So basically this scene is, hey, we know who the unsub is. We've gone to his house. And now we find all this information that proves that our profile was spot on. Aren't we terrific? And oh, no, the local cop screwed it up by losing the tail. (sighs) Can't help nobody. (laughs) So next we see a car pull up near a shipyard and Mr. Abby gets out and walks over to Stiles, who was there waiting for him. Abby apologizes for saying all the things that he said, but he knows Stiles is an artist. He's a genius. He appreciates him. And Stiles says, so what, you came here just to apologize? And Abby says, no, I came because I respect your talent and I want to take full advantage of it. We come back to Hotch. He's in the office and Gideon walks in and Hotch tells him Garcia checked Abby's phone records and he called Styles immediately after Hotch left him. Gideon says Hotch saw someone Abby identified with and Hotch explains how he feels about the whole situation. He, he's saying uh, about, you know, how he feels about never being home and that when he is home that he's frightened he's in a panic because he knows that he has to be as good as he can as fast as he can because any minute the phone will ring and he will have to leave again and uh he's gotta make it up because that time is gonna be up soon and that same panic that he feels is what he saw in abby so he knows how abby feels he identifies which makes it all make sense from about 30 minutes in this episode on but it still doesn't explain the first 30 minutes it's like it's great character development i love it uh kudos for giving us some motivation to why he's such a humorless jerk most of the time at work but (laughs) you know you could have just could have used at least one more rewrite i think Right. So Gideon says, good. Okay, you're going to be Abby. You're a dead man walking. You know that you're going to die and you got to make things right. So what do you do? And then he's like, come on, don't even think about it. What do you do? (laughs) Uh, You know the answer. What is it? And Hotch says, I'd stop him. I'd, I'd burn him the same way he killed them. I'd do it where nobody could get hurt, which is why I would call it in first. They head over to the other part of the office. And coincidentally, Castro is just getting off the phone, having found out that someone has called in anonymously about a fire in the Harbor District. And she gives the address. Uh, Hotch asks if it's a warehouse, commercial warehouse. She confirms that it is. 
Garcia is also on the line right then. And they give her the address and ask if she can check the zoning code. Meanwhile, Prentice says that Chopper has already circled the harbor twice. There's no sign of a fire there. Garcia confirms that the zoning is a commercial storage facility, but it was recently sold. And Hotch says, let me guess, it changed from CR to ES. He explains to everybody that that's elementary school and that there's a leaking benzene tank underneath it. And this isn't a false alarm. And he starts to take off. And Castro says, look, there's no fire there. But Prentice says, there's about to be. We cut over to the warehouse and Styles is there down in what looks like a maintenance area. Uh, Abby comes in from behind and he's pouring out fuel all over the place. He says to, si- to Styles that he started without him. And this is how he does it, right? And Styles is like, oh, fire is a fire. Once it gets going, doesn't matter. Abby says, well, that's not really true, is it? And Styles is like, what? Abby says, the innocent family is missing, the victims. That's what the suit's for, right? So that you can see the terror on their faces as they burn. But of course, you're here to kill me, right? And Styles, ignoring the fact that this guy has just profiled him, even though he's not a profiler, but the... <laughs> Okay. Uh, He's like, yeah, I am. And he pulls out a gun and points it at Mr. Abby and says, you're dead right. (laughs) We cut to Vega. He's in the car with Gideon. He says, we can't put out a benzene fire with water. All that'll do is is spread it around. So they they need to let it burn to exhaust all the fuel. All they can do with the benzene fire is cordon it off to stop it from spreading and let the benzene burn out. He makes sure Gideon gets that, and Gideon's like, yeah, and he says, well, does Hotchner get it? So Gideon gets on the phone. Morgan answers. He tells him not to put him on speakerphone, just to listen. We cut back to the warehouse, and Abby is telling Styles to go ahead and shoot him, but then this place will set off like a bomb, and Styles is finally starting to look a little bit worried. He says, well, his fire suit can handle over 1,500 degrees, And benzene burns fast, so he won't go through half of his air supply before it goes out. And Abby tells him, uh, no, because guess what? Benzene burns twice as much as that. He pulls out his lighter. Styles is like, what are you doing? And Abby says, the right thing. And Styles is like, why? You didn't know any of those people? Abby is like, neither did you. And Styles says, the fire, the fire is going to spread. You don't want to do this. And Abby says, no, the fire department is on the way. So basically, Abby's got an answer to everything here. And Styles says, well, they can't fight a benzene fire. And Abby says, they'll contain it. And then Styles says, well, how do you plan on getting out of here? And he says, I don't. (laughs) That's when, yeah, that's when uh, Styles' eyes start to get wide. And Abby lights the lighter. And there's a kind of a bad CGI. (laughs) (laughs) fire explosion (laughs) and that's it for them we then see from the outside the the whole building is exploding morgan stops the car instead of driving up over there and hotch is like what are you doing and he gets out and he starts to run there and like he's gonna do something and they have to hold him back gideon has pulled up already and and helps morgan hold him back and he's hotch is like it the guy is burning to death. We're just standing here. And Morgan tells him, it's over. It's over. Look at it. And the building explodes again. Once more. Twice more. And uh, Hotch finally stops trying to get there. He says, uh, 
He wanted his death to mean something. And then we get some music playing. We go into an episode ending type of montage. We see Hotch sitting in the office and Vega walking up to him and giving him an envelope, which he says he found in Abby's car. Hotch gives it a look. And then we cut to a neighborhood scene. It's Abby's wife and and son. It's their neighborhood. Hotch gives us our end quote. Gandhi says, live as if you were to die tomorrow and learn as if you were to live forever. Abby's son, Liam, pulls up on his bike. Hotch comes over to him, introduces himself, says he was a friend of his dad. And Liam recognizes him from the baseball practice. Sure he does. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, says, uh, why weren't you at the funeral? Hotch says he had to be with his own family. But he was thinking of him and you. And he hands them an envelope, the envelope. And he says, uh, your dad wanted me to give this to you. Liam asks him, well, why you? Hotch says he doesn't know. Maybe because he was young when his dad died. He hands him his business card and says, someday you may have questions. Please feel free to call me. I'll do everything I can to answer them. Liam thanks him. The camera pulls up, pans to the sky, and our episode ends. A little saccharine. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it pulls at the emotional heartstrings. It shows Aaron Hotchner as, as a human being and... You know, he didn't say I'm Agent Hotchner. He said I'm Aaron. So, you know, yeah. it's like, it, and he was dressed in street clothes and clearly had made a special trip back just to do this. So I think we see a little bit behind the the facade, the parade yes. facade. <laughs> <laughs> what a charade. Yeah. Before we talked about it, I felt like this was, this episode was a C in my mind, if I were to grade it, I'm I'm, I'm going to bump it up because I think you were right. You did point out like a lot of nice character development here, even as our case was mainly a snoozer. Oh yeah, but, it, it uh, just uh, it's, it's like, the corporate and the rezoning and the dip- I don't care. I, I really don't care. <laughs> yeah. So how about it? Let's uh, bring out our barometer, AJ, like we like to do every week. And uh, basically, this is where we decide if the BAU team, quote unquote, won the episode for the week and uh, keep a running tally of that. So why don't you tell us how they did this week? Yeah. First of all, no, no episode title this week. Very sad. Very sad. We had a nice streak of three going there. (laughs) um, Well, you know, they didn't catch the unsub, really. I mean, they never caught them. Um, had he decided to flee, he probably would have gotten away with it. Uh, they were completely wrong about Abby the whole way through. And Abby's the one who kind of, I mean, he's the one who killed <laughs> the unsub. Um, eh, I want to give this a push. I mean, I can't really blame them. They, they were on the ball. They were getting all the pieces together. Uh, yeah, I'm calling a draw. I think that's fair. They would have got there eventually, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, and, yeah. And, you know, if anything, you know, okay, uh, we told the locals to handle certain things, and they did. They dropped the ball, so not not our people's fault. Garcia clickety clacked. I got the name. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Uh, so good. Another thing we like to do every week, AJ, 
After we've talked about the show, we like to have a little quiz that has been inspired by the show uh, that you like to give me because uh, much like our unsubs, you like to torture me. I can't help it. I'm devolving. So we have to ask these questions quickly because <laughs> you never know. I might ask the next question, the next question, the next question. Uh, yeah. Three questions inspired by Criminal Minds. Uh, let's get right to it, shall we? Question one, sir. This one I found interesting. So uh, Mercedes Cologne is the name of the uh, actress who played uh, Castro, our uh, intrepid can't tell uh, one guy. One guy. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is an actress who's worked steadily in Hollywood for many years. Uh, most recently, uh, she's been a recurring character on Euphoria, playing one of the kid's mothers. So, like, you know, she's she's working. Uh, however, I, I looked up her bio, and I found it was absolutely hilarious. This is the only sentence in her personal bio. It says, Almost nothing is known about Cologne, other than she was blank. I would like for you to fill in this blank with a job that she once held, which is related to the National Basketball Association. Ah. Okay, so almost nothing is known about Cologne other than she was a blank. Uh, related to the National Basketball Association. So what I'm going to say, I don't want it to appear sexist because I know there are plenty of jobs uh, that will have women in them in the National Basketball Association, including the current lead of the Players Union. But I just had a funny image. This was very similar to Paula Abdul, and she was a Laker girl. A Laker girl is your answer. And I will completely 100% give you the points for that. I was looking for Laker girl. However, that is not the complete answer here oh. but that's all i needed for you to get the point okay wow the correct answer is she was both a nick city dancer and a laker girl ah, okay. <laughs> working both coasts <laughs> yeah. when she was doing a, when she was doing a broadway show <laughs> right she's doing a soap she's gonna be with the knicks she's working in hollywood she split between the two i just thought that was hilarious wow <laughs> nothing is known about her except <laughs> except she's a Nixon uh, well done well done wow. laker girl i just and, and uh i went to one lakers game when i was living in california and it just that just made me laugh hysterically it was like you'd be watching the basketball game and da, 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 basketball. there'd be a timeout and just the announcer would just go laker girl <laughs> <laughs> And they come up and do the dance. They'd finish their dance. They'd, they'd run off the court. And he'd go, Laker girl. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's all the introduction you need. All right. Question two. We're on a roll. Yeah, I got one. <laughs> all right. Vega. Another fine local flavor. Our, our arson expert, Mr. Vega. Portrayed by... Anthony Ruvivar, who, when he uh, was shooting this episode, he had just finished up a very uh, extended uh, stay of 131 episodes on a show called Third Watch. So very, very uh, familiar with the whole uh, mm -hmm. the whole cop world. And he's 
He's been cops up and down the board uh, throughout his career, including uh, uh, the, the credit right after this one where he also played an Officer Vega, which just made me laugh. <laughs> but uh, come up with different names, people. <laughs> but I want to know, on American Horror Story, what real-life serial killer did he portray? Oh, I have no idea. Uh, I don't know. And again, I'm guessing only based on last name, culture, I'm going to go with Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker is your answer. And I mean, if we've learned anything, anything from Hollywood is that they will stereotype yes of course it is Richard Ramirez <laughs> the Night Stalker <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> I didn't know that the Night Stalker was in American Horror Story but yeah too bad that I can easily get that <laughs> yeah they they, they they showed a lot of, uh, of serial killers real life serial killers on that show uh, coming back in ghost form and <laughs> All that stuff. In in the in the series about the hotel, uh, the, he actually stayed at the the murder hotel out there in, in L.A. So he actually the character did have a connection to it in real life. So it made sense for Richard Ramirez to be there. And question three, my favorite question of the week every week is where we preview next week's episode that we will see right here on the Felonious Pundits. What will the plot be? of Criminal Minds, Season 2, Episode 20, entitled Honor Amongst Thieves. Honor Amongst Thieves. Here are your options. Is it A, a World War II veteran turns to Gideon for help as he and the last remaining survivors of a Tontine Pact are dying mysteriously? Is it B? Emily's mother pays the BAU a visit, seeking their help with a kidnapping involving the Russian mafia. Is it C? Reed plays chess in the park and witnesses a murder. Or did he? Or is it D? When an art gallery heist goes wrong. The BAU has to determine which of the rescued hostages are actually part of the criminal team. Little dog day afternoon for you. <laughs> hmm. What is a a, a tauntaun pack? Is that a Star Wars no, a reference? Tauntaun, <laughs> yeah, a tauntaun pack is when you all agree to go inside this creature to sleep because it's really cold outside and you'd like to stay warm. That's a tauntaun pack. No. <laughs> A, a, a tontine is uh, an agreement between a bunch of people um, that they have an item of value or money or, or some sort of valuable thing, and you make an agreement that it will go to the last person who was alive. Ah. So it's, 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 no one owns it until only one person is left, is essentially, uh, it's, it's a tontine. Okay. Um I wasn't going to choose that one, but I had to ask because I did not know. Uh, and now you do. <laughs> the more you know. Uh, so 
I'm going to choose as my random guess of the week. <laughs> I am going to choose. Uh, let's go with choice to be uh, Emily's mother has come along and she's got a case. She wants them to help. I know okay. I didn't describe that exactly 100%, but that was... Yeah, that's, that's all right. You're going with Emily's mom, coming by the BAU, saying, hey, I need your help. Because there's been a kidnapping, and the Russian mob is involved, and I need your help. Yeah. Well, it is certainly... How would I know what a tontine was unless I saw it on a television show... Except it wasn't on this television show because it is indeed Emily's mother. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, we will meet Ambassador Prentice. <laughs> wow, nice. What a week for me, AJ. I'm astounded. Three for three. Well done. Well done, indeed. Uh, Great. <laughs> we got that to look forward to. <laughs> I cannot wait. Uh, it is about time to see more of... Um, Ms. Prentice's backstory. So I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to chatting with you next week. Folks, that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we hope you had a great time. And please be sure to subscribe to Rate and Review Our Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to spread the word. Let your friends know about us. You can also write to us at feloniouspundits at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore pundits. For AJ Mass, this is Kentad Svensgard saying goodbye and keep profiling. Wheels up. And I will do what I can just to be a better man. The heat is getting higher. I feel that I'm on fire. Lithuanian pop rock band, The Roop. <laughs>